Hi, Walnut Creek. This is Chad and Ashley Summers. And one way the church has helped us to practice life-giving rhythms has been observing and practicing the Sabbath in our week. I've always, been, I've always attended church on Sundays, but I haven't been intentional about cultivating rest, delight, or worshipful heart on Sabbath. I might have thought of Sabbath as boring. I have to sit around and do nothing? Or worse, limiting. I can't even use the free day to get stuff done. What do I mean? Well, now our family views Sabbath as our weekly rest, our day to find rest and delight with a heart of worship in all that we do. For example, Ashley and I begin our Sabbath practice on Saturday night, making a delicious meal for our family and our kids helping set the fancy table with tablecloth and cloth napkins. We break out our candles and enjoy a meal together, even better if shared with some dear friends, savoring all the flavors of the meal and the delight of friendship. Because we don't focus on work or catching up, we can set aside technology to spend Sundays together as a family, focused on quality time together, fire going in the fireplace, board games at the table, sneaking off to take a nap, or even reading in the hammock during the summer. We might seek out new hikes with dear friends, an afternoon coffee with a crossword puzzle, or even some delicious croissant treats. We get to delight in all the gifts God has given us. It's the best! It truly is a life-giving experience that God gives us to set aside the duty of the week for a beautiful day of enjoyment with him. Observing a weekly Sabbath has begun to spill over into other parts of our lives as well, which we'd love to talk to you about. Stop us in the hall and ask, but for now, a reading from God's word. Colossians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of, his, of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Um, it's so great to be here at WCPC. Uh, thank you, Bart uh, and WCPC, for such a warm welcome. Clearly, the warmth of this church is not in its HVAC systems, and so <laughs> if I see you rubbing your hands, I know you're really into the sermon and you're not just cold. 
Um, we've known the Garretts for over two decades, and uh, we were commenting uh, last night when I was with Bart and Katie, only four of those years we actually lived in the same city in Atlanta. Obviously, the Garretts have moved here. Uh, my family, we moved uh, from Atlanta to New York and now live in Indianapolis. But over those uh, two-plus de decades, uh, we've had a nice habit of just visiting each other uh, whenever we were in each other's cities. And um, Bart and I have this sort of quarterly rhythm of catching up. And so uh, about four years ago when he was discerning uh, this decision to, to join here, he, happened to, he and Katie happened to be in Indianapolis with us. And so you don't know me, but in many ways I feel like I know you. And so um, it's, great, it's great to be here. I have a question for you, um, and the question is this. What's the last thing that you deeply hoped for? Now, for some of you might think, well, I wanted the 49ers to make the Super Bowl, but <laughs> apparently you need a healthy quarterback to do that. But I have a second question, um, perhaps a little deeper. What's something that you're afraid to hope for? You're afraid to hope for it because it's too good to be true. You're afraid to hope for it because to actually hope for it and it not be realized would be terribly disappointing. Pay attention to how the Holy Spirit might answer that question as we look through our passage together. Paul's, Paul opens the letter in Colossians just like he opens all of his letters to the various churches. He identifies himself. In verse two, in verse one, he says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. In verse two, he identifies his audience. He says he's talking um, to the Colossian church. And then in verse three through eight, he remarks how impressed he is with their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for the saints. And then from 9 through 14, what was just read was this, you see the whole letter shift in its momentum and its trajectory. And the rest of the letter runs that way. He starts to unpack for them, based on what he's seen, what they can expect. Verse 9, knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. Verse 11, strengthened with all power. Verse 12, sharing in the inheritance of the saints. Verse 13, delivered from the domain of darkness. You see this incredible trajectory and the hinge point of not just the chapter, but the entire letter is verse five. See, right before that, Paul is saying, your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for the saints. He's remarking how incredible this, this little church is having. And think how difficult it would be to impress Paul of all people, especially in the areas of faith and love. But the hinge verse is right here, verse five. It says, the reason that they have such deep faith and such incredible love is because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. There's this hope stored up for them that that church was beginning to access and it was unlocking all of these gifts and blessings that we see later in the passage. My entire talk can be summarized as follows. Hope in Christ is received. Hope in Christ is counterintuitive. Hope in Christ is powerful. And hope in Christ is hard. Let's look at the first one. Hope in Christ is received. Now, what's interesting in verse five is it says that this hope is laid up for them in heaven. And not only is it stored in heaven, it's already there. It's already available to them. And I began wondering, where, where else in scripture 
can we find treasures that are laid up for us in heaven? In fact, there's five. There's five crowns that we see. There's a crown of victory when we've run the race. There's a crown of rejoicing when Jesus returns. There's a crown of righteousness that will be awarded to us on judgment day. There's a crown of life when we die. And finally, there's a crown of glory we receive with Jesus in the heavenlies. But there's a difference here. All of those crowns are things yet to come. There's certain things have to be done before we can receive them. See, we have to run the race. We have to die. Jesus has to come back. But this hope that Paul is talking about, that the church in Colossae is exhibiting, is a hope they have already received. They need not wait for it. In fact, they are experiencing that hope laid out for them so deeply that they can have faith and love that even impresses Paul. So I think it behooves us to understand what other dimensions of this hope can we learn. Because if the church in Colossae could access it, that means WCPC can as well. So the second part of this hope is that hope in Christ is counterintuitive. It would have been incredibly countercultural for this church to believe in a Jewish rabbi since deceased. This wasn't a Jewish outpost, this church. In fact, the Colossian church was made up, was in a Gentile city, made up primarily of Gentiles. And for them to follow this Jewish rabbi and his teachings would have been incredibly counterintuitive, countercultural. The city was known for syncretism, which is basically this fusing of different beliefs into one. I realize that some of you here may not be Christians or are somewhere along in your spiritual journey. And what I say, and a lot of what we say, not just today, but throughout the Bible, would feel counterintuitive to you too. This doesn't make any sense. What do you mean, die to self? The world says live for self. Why would I die to self? My comment to you would be I think much, this is the narrative of Scripture. So much of Scripture is actually counterintuitive to the way that we think. King David was actually a shepherd boy, the youngest of his brothers. Moses, ineloquent in speech, asked to confront Pharaoh. We see this time and time again through Scripture. Have you ever thought about your church here in the Bay Area, similar to what, how Paul looked at the church of Colossae, that amidst all the differing beliefs, the paganism around you in the Bay Area, he would say, well done. I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your love. In the midst of a culture that rejects me, you follow Jesus. Hope in Christ is also powerful. In verse seven, there's a reference to Epaphras. Who is this guy, Epaphras? We don't know a lot about him. There's only three short sentences in scripture. Two are in Colossians and one in Philemon. But we can tell from his name, or we can presume, that he was a Gentile, a Gentile convert, someone who was discipled by Paul. It says that he was faithfully fervent in prayer. And we get the sense that he was the spiritual father of that church. Now, we don't know a lot about him or what happens to him after. 
But that's the funny thing. I don't know who founded this church. I presume some of you do, but some of you may not. And the reality is, 100 years from now, nobody's going to remember any of us sitting here today. But the more than likelihood is that this church will remain. Because there's a thread from the Colossian church to this church and to every church. A thread that despite changes in regimes and political powers and currency powers and economic world powers, that hope in Christ continues and it's powerful because God routinely uses ordinary men and women to do extraordinary things. Hope in Christ though is also hard. I would be remiss to say this is easy. And why is it hard? Hope in Christ, to hope involves a kind of longing. In in a sense that we are are wired and designed to long for something. I love David White in the book Consolations gives a definition of, of longing. He says, longing is nothing without its dangerous edge which cuts and wounds us while setting us free and beckons us exactly because of the human need to invite the right kind of peril. In longing, we move and are moving from a known but extracted elsewhere to a beautiful, about-to-be-reached someone, something, or somewhere we want to call our own. So we're wired to long. There's a difference between faith and hope in God. Faith in God is believing God can do something. Hope in God is believing God will do something. I think many of us have deep faith. We believe God can solve and cure much of what ails us in this world. But I think oftentimes we lack hope. We lack believing that he will do something. And we avoid hoping deeply because we don't want to be disappointed. And if we're honest, hope sometimes, quite frankly, often disappoints us. Epaphras, that brother in Christ, the founder of the church, gets imprisoned, eventually is released, and then is eventually martyred. Many of those brothers and sisters in that church who had deep faith in Christ, deep love for the saints, they too will be martyred. And the church, in fact the entire city, will collapse in an earthquake and disappear. It will not exist anymore. But here's the thing. If we're not routinely being disappointed in God, then I would argue we're not hoping enough in God. How can we be content in 2023 with the current level of injustice in the world and lack of mercy, and the polarizing issues that are tearing the fabric of our society apart. We need to implore God to be God. Come on, God, we need you. If we're not being disappointed enough, then we're not hoping enough. To hope is to risk disappointment. I like what David White says again in in the same book. He defines disappointment this way. Disappointment is a friend to transformation, a call to both accuracy and generosity in the assessment of ourself and others, a test of sincerity and a catalyst of resilience. Disappointment is just the initial meeting with the frontier of an evolving life. 
an invitation to reality, which we expected to be one particular way and turns out to be another, often something more difficult, more overwhelming, and strangely, in the end, more rewarding. As Christians, we know the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. It's through suffering that we're redeemed. It's through suffering that we're transformed. To go down is to go up. I spent this week um, in your lovely Bay Area. Uh, I work for an organization called Praxis. It's a nonprofit, and we were at the Presidio. And we had the distinct pleasure of um, deeply forming a group of entrepreneurs. We had um, about a dozen for-profit entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs that have launched and are trying to scale for-profit businesses. We had another dozen um, non-profit entrepreneurs, so Christians that have started and launched non-profits. And then finally, we had a group of um, redemptive investors and redemptive philanthropists looking to deploy their capital in redemptive ways. And for, each, for everyone in the, each of these folks, we tried to provoke them, provoke them to the redemptive edge of their industry or their craft. And we do that with a question, one that requires hope, a hope that's received, a hope that's counterintuitive, a hope that's powerful and yet hard. For our for-profit entrepreneurs, they work inside a system of capitalism in which lies a fundamental tension. You see, capitalism has incredible power to do social good, and yet it sits embedded within a long legacy of harm. And within that system, what we say at Praxis is the supremacy of money and the inevitability of progress are two misplaced hopes where much of the actors within capitalism place their hope. So for our redemptive business entrepreneurs, we challenge them with this question. As Christians in the workplace, can we be prophets of a better way? Can we leverage these market forces, not just to increase our profits, but to also serve more people? For our nonprofit entrepreneurs, in the world of nonprofits, a practice we talk about there being a structural gap and a nobility trap, a human issue. The structural gap, or the structural issue, I should say, is something we call the stakeholder gap. You see, the funders of a nonprofit are not the beneficiaries of the nonprofit. And what ends up happening is those funders and the board of the nonprofit and the leaders of the nonprofit become siloed from the very beneficiaries they're trying to serve. And over time, if they're not careful, the beneficiaries don't become co-designers in the solutions designed for them. The human issue with most nonprofits is something we call the nobility trap. Over time, sentimental admiration of the nonprofit leader, charismatic, visionary, or the nobility of the mission that they're pursuing causes a neglect or absence of scrutiny. And a gap emerges between the nonprofit's stated mission and the assessment of its impact by the beneficiaries. 
And so we challenge our nonprofit entrepreneurs. How might you use your creative gifts to tell the truest version of your story, not the grandest? For our investors seeking to deploy capital, we want them to see venture investing not as just an asset class in which to get a particular type of financial return. But what if they looked at as investing as a means of cultural creation, cultural renewal? For our investors, we challenge them with the following question. Instead of asking what impact can investors expect from the returns they're seeking, we inverse the question. We challenge redemptive investors to ask what returns they can expect, can expect, not from the impact, but from the influence they're seeking. And then lastly, for redemptive-minded philanthropists, you know, the world of philanthropy is mostly risk-averse. Stewarding financial resources is often synonymous with asset preservation. However, if you think about scripture, and you think about even your own lives, the points of inflection, where you come to a fork in the road, and clearly you're needing that God's wanting you to make a decision. Those decisions, those forks in the road, are rarely about asset preservation or risk mitigation. No, in those decision points, God's usually calling you to go all in with him. And through that lens, risk is a gift. The gift of risk for redemptive philanthropists lies in them shifting the nonprofit's perspective from cautious to audacious, from scarcity to abundance, which may result in a bigger vision that has the capacity to solve a bigger problem. So the question that we ask philanthropists is what if risk is not something to be minimized or eliminated, but what if risk is a gift? Each of these questions can only be answered by taking a risk-taking, sacrificial move of obedience towards deep formation in Christ. Each of these questions are premised on hope. Without hope, it's simply not possible. Without hope in Christ, it's not possible to overturn these strong cultural and industry trends that swim against the flow of redemption. What's the question in your life that you're facing, that may tinge, hint, the, the hinge point in your life, that may turn you to more towards the redemptive. What question requires you to access hope that is received, counterintuitive, powerful, and yet hard? 18 years ago, uh, a group of friends gathered uh, in my wife and my living room. And we laid hands on Bart and Katie and gave them the hope that we had received in Christ and sent them here to California. We, it was counterintuitive. Bart's from Alabama and now he's in charge of your spiritual formation. That makes no sense. It was hard. Ask them what it was like to travel across country that first night when they got to their home, sat on the floor didn't know anyone, and just wept. But it's also powerful. They left many friends when they left Atlanta, but they've gained many, many more by being here. Maybe you're facing something 
a set of circumstances in your life that it's just too hard to hope for. A relationship, a situation with a child, an employer, an industry that's exploitive. There's good news, though. And the good news is Jesus is not only the object of our hope. He's the means by which we hope in him. You see, he received the hope that the Father had for him to be the Savior of the world. It was counterintuitive. He came not in this all-powerful, conquering force, but as an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes. It was hard. His hope cost him his very life. But it was powerful because three days later, he not only conquered his accusers, but death itself. And that hope remains. The hope we read about in the Church of Colossae is the same hope that we have available to us today. My hope and prayer is that you would access that hope, even when it's hard, even when it's on the edge of potential disappointment. Because he's worth it. And he deems us worthy. Let's pray. Jesus, help us to hope in you. Help us to receive the hope that you have for us, already stored, already purchased for us through your blood. That little church in Colossae was on to something, Lord, and we pray, I pray for WCPC that they would receive that hope too, as counterintuitive as it is, as hard as it is. It would unleash for this church all that it did for that church because there's a thread from that church to this one that you have ensured that will continue through ordinary men and women. May you accomplish extraordinary things. Thank you for being our hope and the means in which we hope. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen.